It was supposed to be only a short film about a murderer capturing his victim, having a little sinister fun, and then ending his life. All just a little bit of fiction, a little bit of imagination, but was it really? In today's episode, we are diving into a story where fact and fiction fuse to create a bizarre sequence of events that led to one death. I'm Stephanie Morham, and this is Wicked Ever After. Please consider subscribing to my channel and liking this episode. I really do appreciate your support. And a friendly reminder, I still have Invisalign and I am struggling with the pronunciation of some of my words, so please bear with me throughout this video. Our story starts in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, also known as the Gateway to the North. It's home to the largest urban green space in North America and is one of the sunniest cities in Canada averaging 325 days of sunshine. However, underneath all of that vitamin D, locals often refer to this part of Canada as Deadminton, since this city has the highest homicide rate in Canada. It's there that we find 38-year-old Johnny Altinger. He's a single man, he likes to ride motorcycles, and claims he's unlucky with women, yet he has a wide circle of friends. Friends who would come in handy later in this story. John was on a quest to find love and appeared to be an active user of Plenty of Fish, which is a dating app. In October of 2008, John was conversing on this app with a woman named Jen, or so he thought he was. After some flirty exchanges, John and Jen decided it was time to meet in person. John allowed Jen to pick the time and the location. John received really long directions, which at times were more like nervous ramblings and full of unnecessary information, but ultimately they directed him to a garage off of an alleyway. The messages are really long that Jen sent John, so I'm going to summarize them for you so you can get a general idea of how this all went down. He was told it was the only driveway off of an alley and to come in on the alley side that there might be abandoned furniture and trash outside leaning up against a fence, and that the garage door would be slightly open so he would know it was the right place. Jen also told him, don't worry about the neighbors thinking that he's a thief because everyone around here knows there's nothing of value in his garage, minus his car. John was instructed to knock once when he arrived and that Jen would be awaiting his arrival. On October 10th, John did notify some of his close friends that he would be meeting a woman that he met on Plenty of Fish and that her name was Jen. But that was the last time anyone would ever hear or see from Johnny again. A few days later, John's friends received an email that stated, I've met an extraordinary woman, her name is Jen, and she has offered to take me on a nice long tropical vacation. We'll be staying in her winter home in Costa Rica, phone number to follow soon. I won't be back in town until December 10th, but I will be checking my email periodically. See you around the holidays, Johnny. When John's friends received this email, they were instantly alarmed. Not only did this email seem too stuffy and formal to be from John, but this exact word-for-word -word email was sent to several of his friends, which was also out of character. In addition, a letter of resignation was also sent via email to John's work, 
But when his workplace asked him where to forward his last check, they never heard from him. John's friends contacted the police, but because there was no body and no evidence of foul play, the police didn't take the matter too seriously, assuming John would just come home after his trip from Costa Rica. Remember, this city has a high homicide rate, so with limited staff, you have to be picky about what cases grab and get your immediate attention. This one didn't seem like it needed to be high on their list since no evidence of foul play was present. Taking matters into their own hands, the friends of John broke into his condo to take a look around. Besides a few dirty dishes, everything seemed pretty normal. There was no sign of foul play, no sign of a struggle, and nothing was missing minus John's key, wallet, and Mazda car. All things that would have been used or he would have taken with him when he left on his date. However, they did find one thing that would turn this entire case on its head. They found John's passport, leading them obviously to believe that the email they received was fabricated. Having enough now to open up an official investigation, police focused on the garage that John had been led to in the messages he received from Jen. They found out that this garage belonged to a man named Mark Twitchell. Born in Edmonton, Alberta, Mark dreamed of making blockbuster films and graduated from the radio and television arts program at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology in 2000. In 2001, Mark married an American woman and moved to Illinois, but they divorced in 2004. In 2007, Mark directed Star Wars Secrets of the Rebellion, a full-length fan film. The film, forever in post-production, never saw release. Mark also scripted Day Players, a buddy comedy. Then, in September 2008, a month before John's disappearance, Mark shot a short horror film entitled House of Cards at the same garage John had been given directions to. I'm going to say red flag. Police met Mark at the garage, hoping to gain entry. But then it was discovered that the padlock had been changed. Mark told them it wasn't his padlock and he now had no way to get inside. That's very weird, Mark. He was fully cooperative and calm and expressed he had no idea who this John person was and had never seen him. He seemed baffled about the whole thing, unable to do anything about the garage at the time. Police moved on to other investigative outlets. Intrigued by the passport as condo, police started looking into flight records to see if John had ever boarded a flight. There was no record of John taking any flights in the time since he went missing, and there was no record of him anywhere. While canvassing the neighborhood for traces of John, police came across an elderly couple with an interesting story to tell. They told police that one night they'd been out for a walk. When a man came running out of the alleyway claiming he was being chased by a man in a hockey mask. This was obviously very alarming to the couple, but due to their suspicions that perhaps this man was a ploy to gain trust while the second man would rob them, they didn't stay to help or ask any question and proceeded on their way. The man they described did not match the description of John, so the police moved on. With the investigation not really going anywhere, police went back 
to square one and decided that their first goal was to find the car, the Mazda 6, that hadn't yet turned up. They searched every parking lot in the area and continued to scour airline passenger lists and airport lots, but continued to come up empty-handed. So they went back to Mark to see if he could shine any more light on the situation. They learned that he was the owner of Express Entertainment, which was a legitimate business and movie studio company. No red flags there. Mark had told them that he used the garage as a studio space for filming and to store studio equipment. No red flags there either. When police later gained access to the garage, the initial search uncovered what appeared to be blood spatter, which Mark told the police came from the House of Cards execution scene he was filming. That is a definite red flag. Police noted that the garage itself resembled a scene right out of the Showtime series Dexter. It had plastic sheets covering all the window, a table with blood spatter, and cleaning supplies laid out. While a little weird, the police weren't convinced Mark was involved. After all, he had been cooperative and willing to help them in any way he could. They had asked and showed no signs of nervousness or weird body language, something police often look for when they're speaking to a suspect. However, during an interview with Mark, they had asked him about John's car. And in a weird coincidence, Mark knew exactly what car they were talking about. Turns out, Mark had just bought John's Mazda 6. His story was that he had met John before his trip to Costa Rica and that John was looking to sell his car. He claimed that he bought the Mazda from John for $40 Canadian. That's like $30 US. Who sells their car for $40 Canadian? And then parked the new car in his friend's driveway because he didn't know how to drive manual transmission. Who also buys a car that's manual and you don't know how to buy drive a manual car? Okay, Mark, you're such a liar. Not strange at all. This instantly set some alarm bells off for the police, obviously. Talk about coincidental. Mark's story seemed a little too tidy and convenient to think that it was all true. Leaning into that instinct, detectives decided to look a little deeper into Mark. Who was this man, and did he have any connection with John's disappearance? Or was he just an innocent filmmaker? Whichever he was, they were about to find out. Based on Mark's interview and answers about the car, they seized Mark's laptop and car to see if anything could lead to clues about John. During their investigation of the car, investigators found a knife with blood on both the sheath and the knife. The blood was proven to be John's, and on October 31st, 2008, Mark was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. During Mark's trial in 2010, several bizarre things came to light in the case. First, we have Renee Waring, who had a twisted tale to tell. Via video link, Renee told the court about how in 2008, she had started to correspond with a person on Facebook who had the profile name Dexter Morgan. Because she was a big fan of the television show Dexter, which is all about a vigilante serial killer, her interest immediately peaked. 
Renee wasn't sure if the person behind the profile was the real Dexter Morgan, but soon the two were corresponding, regularly exchanging frequent and long emails. The man behind the profile did eventually confess to being Mark Twitchell and not the real Dexter. Over time, they discussed their personal lives and soon found out they shared many mutual interests in movies and science fiction characters. They shared a love of the Dexter TV show and discussed common plot lines and scenarios. Mark told her he was a film producer living in Canada who had made a short horror film called House of Cards, a thriller about a serial killer who targeted married men who go online to find dates with women. Sound familiar? At one point, Renee writes, So you're a geek like me. Fantastic. She testified that she had always wanted to be a writer and felt lucky to have started a relationship with someone with contacts and insights into the film industry, saying, To stumble into something like that felt almost like a dream, I thought at the time. As their talks continued, they started sharing their dark fantasies. At one point, Renee wrote messages about hating her ex-husband's new wife, who had just moved into her former home. In another message, Mark wrote, prepare a kill room the same way Dexter does, wall-to-wall plastic sheets. The term kill room is similar language that's used in the television show Dexter. Mark went on to suggest that stun guns were easy to obtain in the U.S. and that he could incapacitate a victim, although in later conversations he said that a stun gun might not be as reliable as he once thought because a potential victim could try to grab the device. Instead, he suggested using copper wire. How this woman didn't have any red flags going off is beyond me. To dispose of the body, he suggested purchasing a hunter's game processing kit one similar to the one found in his garage. Renee, not concerned by his strange advice, continued the dark fantasy discussions, but did express her doubts that the advice would actually work in the real world. She wrote in one correspondence, oh well, that's what dark fantasies are, just a fantasy. Fast forward to October 10th, 2008, a few days after John disappeared. And Renee received a quick message from Mark stating, Sorry this is so short, but I'm juggling six things right now and it's time to shift down to five. Four days passed without any further correspondence from John until the next message read, Suffice to say, I crossed the line on Friday and I liked it. No further detail was given at the time. The pair continued to message and talk on the phone And in an email on October 27th, a few days before his arrest, Renee received a message from Mark talking about how a police investigation was centered around the garage he had rented for his films. The police have tossed my house and impounded my car. They won't find anything, he wrote, and added that it wasn't the worst case scenario. He asked her not to ask about the details, then added, Of course, all my recent delves into the dark fiction don't look great in light of this, so I'll be explaining that till I'm blue in the face. This ended up being a pattern with Mark, as investigators had recovered a few emails sent to friends talking about the police investigation, 
and requesting that they not talk to the police about him. Seems like he was trying to silence everyone and keep them from cooperating. Now, do you remember the couple who had seen the man running out of the alleyway during their evening walk? Well, the man being chased turned out to be an individual by the name of Gilles Tetreau. He had met a woman named Sheena online and was given very similar directions to a garage, much like John. Gilles said that Sheena had refused to give the actual address to the garage and instead gave detailed instructions about the alleyway and trash being near the fence. He was also told that the garage would be left a crack open. Gilles made it to the garage, expecting Sheena to meet him at the door. When instead, he entered the garage and felt someone grab him from behind. Instead of being seduced by Sheena, he came face to face with a man in a hockey mask who shocked him with a stun gun. Soon, the masked man took out a gun and ordered Jill to the ground and proceeded to place duct tape on his eyes. While on the ground, Gilles decided, if I'm going to die, I'd rather go my way than his way. So infused with survival instincts and adrenaline, Gilles got up, ripped the tape from his eyes and grabbed the attacker's gun. It was then that he realized the gun was made of plastic. A violent struggle then ensued, Gilles gaining traction, had reached the door, only to be pulled back by Mark. Eventually, riddled with terror, Gilles escaped from the garage, and that is when he was seen running and screaming that a man in a hockey mask was after him. That is when Mark decided to stop the pursuit and went back to his garage to cover up potential evidence. Gilles never reported the incident to the police due to embarrassment and with each passing day had convinced himself that the attack wasn't as terrifying as he originally thought. But it was only a week later, John found himself in the same garage, lured by the connection with a fake woman named Jen. And this time, he wasn't going to be as lucky as Gilles. It's worth noting that prosecutors did want to try Mark for both Gilles and John's case, but there wasn't enough evidence to link the cases together, so he was only put on trial for the murder of John. So Mark had been arrested. We know he's been having weird conversations with people online, and now we know he had another victim before John. So where was John and what really happened that night? Remember when police had taken Mark's car and laptop? Well, during their search of Mark's personal laptop, they came across a file named SK Confessions. I'm assuming SK means serial killer, that Mark claimed was just a document of a screenplay. However, they would find out it was something very different. The beginning of the SK confession said this. This story is based on true events. The names and events were altered slightly to protect the guilty. This is my progression into becoming a serial killer. Like anyone starting out in a new skill, I had a bit of trial and error in the beginning of my misadventures. Allow me to start from the beginning, and I think you'll see what I mean. I don't remember the exact place and time it was that I decided to become a serial killer, but I remember the sensation that hit me when I committed to the decision. It was a rush of pure euphoria. 
I felt lighter, less stress, if you will, at the freedom of the prospect. There was something about urgently exploring my dark side that greatly appealed to me, and I'm such a methodical planner and thinker. The very challenge itself was enticing to behold. This realization was just the last in a series of new discoveries I made about myself. I just knew I was different somehow from the rest of humanity. I feel no such emotions as empathy or sympathy towards others, for example. The document included details about a hockey mask, lead pipes, and the Dexter prepped garage, all things that were aligned directly with the evidence they found at the crime scene. One passage even spoke of the killer trying to burn human remains in a barrel, the same barrel police had found inside Mark's garage. After reading through the SK confession documents, police realized that this was in fact not a screenplay and rather a diary of Mark's killing. Police discovered that on the night John had left to drive, to the garage, he entered the space and was hit over the head with the lead pipe and then stabbed to death repeatedly. Mark then laid him on his work table and dismembered him before attempting to burn parts of his body, but ultimately ended up disposing of the body in a different location. During the trial, Mark took the stand in his own defense and tried to argue that he had accidentally killed John in self-defense. Okay, Mark. But in the end, decided to disclose the location of the body. Mark gave authorities a handwritten document with directions on Google Map, which led police to a manhole where John's remains had been dumped. On April 12, 2011, Mark was convicted of first-degree murder for the death of John and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole for 25 years. While in prison, investigative journalist and McEwen University professor Steve Linlinbu set out to write a book about the Dexter-obsessed murderer, and in late 2010, he started receiving tons of letters from Mark himself. The first one said, if you're going to be writing a book about me, you might as well come straight to the source. Through their correspondence, Steve learned a lot about Mark, but most of all, is that he seemed to obsess over writing every single thought in his head down on paper. I would often get 10 pages back in response to one question, Steve reported. Mark was also still adamant that he had killed John out of self-defense, saying that if he had just turned around and ran, he would have been fine. In a letter from 2011, Mark wrote to Steve trying to explain himself. There is no root cause, no school bully, or impressionable gory movie or video game violence, or Showtime television series to point the finger at. It is what it is, and I am what I am. In another exchange, shortly after, Mark expresses dismay over the outrage the case had caused and the comparisons that were drawn between him and the TV character Dexter. I find the whole thing highly hypocritical. There's something obtuse about someone taking a savage glee and watching psychotics brutally murder dozens of people on TV and then suddenly 
playing as though their stomach is turning inside out when this happens under totally unique circumstances in real life. Isolated incident. He goes on to say, Dexter, don't forget, is a monster. A self-aware one, nonetheless. In a strange attempt to distance himself from the famed TV character, he seemed to only be describing himself and how much he was actually similar to Dexter. To further solidify that point in May 2013, it was reported that Mark had purchased a television for his prison cell. Mark stated that he had caught up on every Dexter episode that he had missed since he was arrested and convicted of first-degree murder. So weird. John is remembered fondly by his friends and family. They reminisce on stories about his love of computers, technology, and video games. They remember the memories made in his small apartment, his love for paintballing, and the way he treated his two motorcycles like they were his babies. While he didn't have a wife, they all fell in love with his compassion, his kindness, and his empathy, recalling moments when he would drive across town to comfort a friend who had a bad day. It seems like John represented the best of us, and while his life was taken too soon, it's apparent that he left a mark on so many and will truly live on in every good deed they perform in the world. This case can teach us so much about how to stay safe in the online world, the importance of informing people where you are when you're meeting strangers, and most importantly, the power we have to choose what we put in our minds. It reminds us of the thin line that separates fiction from reality and the devastating consequences that can arise when the line is crossed. Please let me know what you think of this particular episode in the comments. Please also hit the subscribe button on YouTube or whatever podcasting platform you're listening on. You can stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at this is Stephanie Moram. Until next time, stay safe out there.